0: The Gospel for today comes from Mark chapter 1. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were in their boat, mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men, and followed him. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Dear friends in Christ, grace and peace to you from God, our Creator, And from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. We are going to be in the Old Testament today, our first reading. And the unfair part of that reading for today is that we started it in the middle of the story. But this is a story, the story of Jonah, is entirely about what it means for things to be unfair. So it seems appropriate. It does, though, help if you start from the beginning. So let's do that. Once upon a time, there was a man named Jonah. Now, that's not quite how the Bible actually starts the story, but it might as well, because we should get one thing out on the table before we go any farther. And that is this, that Jonah is not a story that happened. Instead, Jonah is a story that matters. This is especially important when we get to the middle of it. The Bible teaches us very quickly that sometimes truth is bigger than the facts, and stories that matter are not only the stories that happened. So, back to Jonah. Jonah was a prophet of the people of Israel. And he must have been one heck of a prophet, because one day God gave him one heck of a job. Go at once to Nineveh, that great city, said God, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Well, at first glance, anyway, that sounds like a pretty standard prophet thing to do, right? If you're a prophet of the Lord, you have to expect some calls to go out and deliver difficult messages. Jonah must have heard that sort of instruction before. But this time it's different. Because this is not an inside job. Jonah is not, as prophets often normally were, he's not called to go to God's people and tell them to shape up, to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with God, to obey the commandments, to make sure they are caring for the people on the fringes of society, the widow and the orphan. Nope, Jonah, Jonah's called to preach to some outsiders, And not only outsiders, Jonah is called to preach to Israel's worst, most infamous, most hated enemy. Imagine being called to preach to your worst enemy. A person or group of people who represent the opposite of everything that is most important to you. Who might want to destroy what you have or your way of life. Now, just in case you yourself don't have a mortal enemy, you can certainly think of those in the world who have. The world has never had any shortage of mortal enemies. So that's what we're talking about here. Would you go to try to save someone who hates you? I don't know what you would do, but we know what Jonah would do. Jonah is supposed to go to the capital city of his enemies, this great city of Nineveh. But instead of going to Nineveh, as God commands, Jonah hops the next boat to Tarshish, which is like being told to go to New York and getting on the next plane to Los Angeles instead. And that is how Jonah's story really begins. This plan, Jonah's plan to just, frankly, run in the opposite direction, works for about 20 minutes, until a great storm comes upon this ship headed to Tarshish, and the sailors decide that surely somebody on board must have really angered the gods, or they wouldn't be in the middle of this terrible storm. So the sailors frantically cast lots, trying to figure out who messed up, whose fault this is, and wouldn't you know, huh, the lot fell on Jonah, who hid in the bottom of the boat. The sailors tried everything they could. They rowed to shore. They were bailing water out of the ship, but nothing worked until finally Jonah came back up to the top and confessed that he might actually, yes, possibly have been the source of the problem. He volunteers to walk the plank, and they toss him happily into the sea, and the storm stops almost immediately. You might think this was Jonah finally doing something courageous offering to sacrifice himself to save the ship and the sailors. Or maybe Jonah just figures that jumping overboard is the one sure way he'll never have to go to Nineveh. Either way, what happens now is the famous part of the story, the part that you learn in Sunday school, and the part where getting too wrapped up in proving the facts is going to get you in trouble. For Jonah is swallowed by the great fish, and there he remains in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. He prays and prays from his slimy prison, and after three days, the fish spits him out onto dry land. Wouldn't you know it? On the shores of Nineveh. Huh. If you want to get really technical about the Hebrew here, the word actually says that the great fish vomits Jonah onto the dry land, which is the kind of thing that really gives this story its punch. And that is where we picked up the story today. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Let's try this again, shall we? Some of us are slower to follow God than others, it seems. And God is willing to try again. If you've ever thought that God isn't interested in second chances, Jonah is here to tell you, no matter how spectacularly badly it went the first time, God tries again. So Jonah hears this call a second time, and this time he grudgingly goes as God commands. He walks all across the city of Nineveh, crying out, that 40 days more, and Nineveh will be overthrown, destroyed. Except that as he goes, he discovers something kind of surprising. He's actually enjoying this job. Because, if you think about it, is he offering his enemies salvation? No. Is he asking or inviting or even commanding them to change their ways? not really. All he's doing is going to the city of the people he hates the most to proclaim that God is about to annihilate them off the very face of the earth. And after a few days of this, Jonah decides, you know what? This is fun. It's fun to shout out loud that God is going to get the people that you hate. Most of us have to keep that kind of thing inside. This not socially appropriate. But Jonah gets a divine pass to do it day after day after day. This is his definition of a good time. He preaches one of the shortest, least imaginative sermons in all of the Bible. Eight words in English, only five in Hebrew. Forty days more, and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. That's the whole sermon. But then comes the interesting part. The real miracle in the story which is not the fish, actually. The idea of Jonah being swallowed by a fish and traveling, it, and traveling inside of it for three days is actually more believable than what comes next. Because you know what's not believable? That this five-word sermon works. That the whole wicked, nasty, awful, brutish city listens to Jonah. And at the word that he brings them and the command of the king, they all put on sackcloth and ashes, they cry out to God to forgive them, and they repent completely of everything they've ever done wrong. Do you know how often that happens in the Bible? How often a prophet preaches for repentance and the people actually do it? I will show you on one hand. Zero times. This... Literally never happens. Which means Jonah is now the most successful prophet in the history of Israel. No one can beat his track record. Five word sermon converts a whole city. And how does Jonah react? Does he brag about his prophetic skills? Does he hold up his arms in triumph and return home, a conquering hero, having converted a whole city? Does he kneel in awe at the power of the word of God to bring about change? Nope. Jonah is mad. And I mean real mad. In fact, Jonah is absolutely, completely furious that God is not going to do as promised and annihilate the city of Nineveh. That's pretty much what kept him going day after day, all those days of preaching in the city of his enemies. At night, he laid in bed imagining what it would look like when the fury of God descended from the heavens. He pictured himself sitting like off someplace where he would be safe from the lightning bolts and the thunder, but he'd still be able to watch the whole city just burn to the ground. And Then he'd get up in the morning and preach destruction again. So when he finishes preaching and goes off to sit under a tree and watch the city explode, and God says, oh, by the way, they changed their ways, so I decided not to wipe them out. You did a great job. You can go home. Thanks. Jonah is, to be frank, ticked. If he wasn't the first person to say these words to God, he certainly isn't the last. That's not fair, he says. And then he gives God a piece of his mind. You know what, God, says Jonah, this is why I fled to Tarshish in the beginning. Because you are not fair. Because you're gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and I hate it. You know what, God, Jonah finishes, if you will not destroy Nineveh, then you should kill me instead because it's better for me to die than to watch you save the people I hate. There are two repentances in this story. Two times that somebody turns completely away from what they were doing and goes in a different direction. The first one is the city of Nineveh. Right down to the cows, says the story. They all put on sackcloth and ashes. They all repent, which doesn't mean that they feel bad about what they did before, but more importantly, that they decide to seek a completely different future. They drop their weapons, and they beat their tanks into tractors, and they decide not to climb over the little people to get to the top. Not anymore. They repent. They change. The second repentance, quite surprisingly maybe, is God. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them and God did not do it. Now this throws many of us off a little bit, the idea that God can change God's mind. Isn't God supposed to know in advance what's going to happen? God shouldn't have to change God's mind, right? But what this story tells us is that God can always surprise us. Every time we think we know how the rules work and who our enemies are and who we're supposed to hate, God's mercy turns out to be a thousand times wider than we thought. As far as I can tell, the book of Jonah, which is only four chapters long, we didn't quite get to the end of it today, it's one of the only biblical books that ends with a question. It's a question from God. Jonah, says God, should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also many animals? which means there's one last possible repentance in this story. We've seen the first two. The people of Nineveh turn around and go a different way. God turns around and goes a different way. But there's one left out, left hanging in the air. What will Jonah do? Jonah, who's pouting under a tree, waiting for God to wipe out his enemies, berating God for being so foolishly loving and merciful... Can Jonah repent? Can he turn around and go a different way? Can he see that his determination to see this whole city of people only as his enemies is a decision that's only destroying him? The story ends with the question We don't know what Jonah decides to forgive or to hold on to the ideas that he's always thought were right. I suspect the story ends with a question because it doesn't matter what Jonah did. What matters is what we do after we hear his story. Will we see God at work in the people we think of as enemies? Will we be able to believe that God's love and mercy is a lot bigger and wider than our arms? Will we be able to let go of our not-so-secret hopes that God will smite the people we hate and prove that we were right all along? How will we answer God's question? How should this sermon end?